following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, it is Palm Sunday, um, but I, I will tell you that preaching on Jesus riding on a donkey would have been a heck of a lot easier than what I've got to preach on this morning. Uh, we're, not, we're not preaching, I'm not preaching on that, that particular story. We've got a tough passage this morning to look at from the Sermon on the Mount. We're in this series uh, working through the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that Jesus spoke in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. And uh, I did send out fair warning about this morning's sermon, didn't I? Some of you got the email. If, you, if you're just visiting this morning and you're not sure what all of this is about, this is, this is one of those tough passages in the Bible. This is a challenging passage, and Jesus talks about issues to do with adultery and lust, and we're going to talk about sexuality and sex and so on. So I've, I've, I've given a caution around this. I think in reality, probably this morning's message is, I would put it at an M. It, 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 I, mean, you never, I mean, it's possible it could go up to R16. I'm hoping... I'm hoping we can keep it at M, but in all seriousness, parents, if you, if you just arrived today and you don't know what this is all about, I'm just, this is just my caution to you. I want to be honest with you. It's all, if you have children in with you this morning, it's always at your discretion uh, whether you keep your children in or take them out, but just so you can make an informed decision that this is some of the territory that we are heading into this morning. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to inflict reading the passage on anyone here today. I will take that cross upon myself. All right, I'm taking a few crosses upon myself this morning, uh, but this will be the first one. So Matthew chapter five, let's get straight into it. I know there's kind of this awkwardness in the room this morning. Hopefully we can just cut through that and actually uh, be able to just listen and understand and receive and apply what Jesus says. So here we are, Matthew five, uh, verses 27 through to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right. That's a cherry passage, isn't it? So I'm assuming that all of you completed the recent census, hopefully. Uh, Did you notice any particularly interesting questions in the census this year? Yeah, it was a surprise to me. I didn't realize uh, that that was coming. But you had these particular questions on sexuality in the census this year. I think there was a question on uh, sexual orientation. There was a question around gender identity. There was a question even around variations of sex characteristics which is to do with intersex. Uh, And so that was all new in the census this year. Uh, None of that was in the last census in 2018. I went back and had a look at the 2018 census, and it's interesting the the difference. Back in 2018, there were all of these well-being questions. So we were asked about our moods and emotions and how often in the last four weeks have you felt lonely and that kind of thing. And there's this interesting shift to this census where you have these very overtly uh, questions around sexuality. Now, I don't want to read too much into that. I know that different censuses will always focus on different things, but I think it represents something of a shift in our culture. I think things are changing quickly in our culture. 
uh, I think there is a shift towards more and more focus on issues of sexuality. Uh, I think in Western culture, uh, sex, sexuality is really becoming a massively prominent issue. These issues are coming to the fore. I don't just mean like sexual images are everywhere. Like that's true. That's been true for a long time. But I mean sexuality itself, um, particularly around issues of gender, sexual orientation, sexual expression. These are becoming more and more issues of public concern. I mean, you only need to look at Posey Parker, right, and what happened there. And without getting into all the ins and outs of that with, with free speech and hate speech and all of that, the sheer fact that that drew such a crowd, the sheer fact that that had so much media attention, so much publicity around it, shows you the kind of emphasis that these issues are having. What other kind of topics are going to be such hot-button topics in our society? What other kinds of issues are going to provoke such hostility on both sides? And I think that's probably just going to continue as we get closer to the election this year. I think, sadly, that these issues around sexuality are going to become part of the culture wars in our, in our context, and they already are. These are big issues. They're front and center. And I think as Christians, we can easily default to either getting angry about it and getting really defensive about it, or we can default to ignoring it and hoping it all goes away. And just, I don't understand what's going on, and I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and just talk about other things. That's not a helpful response either. I think in this landscape that we are in of a hypersexualized culture, that's what I would call it, a hypersexualized culture, uh, we need to come back to the words of Jesus and do our best to ground ourselves in Scripture and come back to a biblical vision of what sexuality is all about. That's what I'm hoping we get out of this morning. Not a whole lot of you must and you should and try harder and here's the rules, but something of a big vision that God has for our human sexuality, which is actually a really positive and beautiful thing. I think that's where Jesus' words are coming from. So these words in this passage, this is not like old-fashioned stuff. This is not like the stuff your grandma used to say, this is not Victorian, prudish sexual ethics. This is wisdom. This is deep truth and life in a culture that is often chaotic and even contradictory when it comes to issues of sexuality. This is solid ground. So let's dive in. There's going to be some tough territory here, but let's just move through it carefully and, and see what Jesus says. So, Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So this is probably the only verse that's straightforward in the whole passage. Jesus is referring back to one of the Ten Commandments. This is, I think, the seventh of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? You shall not commit adultery. Uh, last week, we had the sixth commandment with you shall not commit murder. Todd took us through that. Now Jesus just goes to the very next commandment. And this was one of the 10 pillars of the law for Israel. So very foundational. Uh, everybody would have been understanding and agreeing with what Jesus is saying at this point. No argument around this. Do not commit adultery. By the way, I had a conversation the other day with, um, don't tell him I said this, but I had a conversation with Lawson, our 11 year old. And um, he said to me, dad, what age did you get married? And I said, I got married at 20. And he said, oh, Dad, you committed adultery. <laughs> so I said, no, actually, Lawson, getting married at 20 and committing adultery are two different things. <laughs> so we've still got a bit to do with Lawson on this passage, just helping him understand <laughs> the ins and outs of all this. Um, but this is 
the foundation of what Jesus is saying. Do not commit adultery. So do not sleep with someone who is not your husband or your wife. All right? Very straightforward. Everyone's in agreement on this point. But then what he does with this is really where the challenge comes in. In verse 28, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, let's understand what Jesus is not saying here. I don't think he's saying that adultery and lust are just the same thing. I don't think he's flattening it out as if to say, well, it's all just the same. It doesn't really matter which of those two sins you commit. It, it's just all the same. Clearly, and Todd did a good job of addressing this last week in the context of murder and anger. Clearly, these two things are not the same. In terms of seriousness, in terms of the consequences, in terms of the damage that is wrecked on individuals and lives and homes and households, adultery, having an affair, is far, far more serious than lust. I'm not downplaying lust. We'll get to that. I'm not negating the importance of dealing with lust. But I'm saying in the context of consequences and seriousness, clearly, adultery is more serious. But what I think Jesus is saying is when it comes to our sexual integrity before God, when it comes to sexual purity before God, it's not just an issue of externals. This is so important. It's not just an issue of what we do with our bodies. Yes, that's important. Yes, that's part of it. But it's also about what we do with our heart. In fact, as we'll see, it's from the heart that so much sexual impurity comes. And Jesus is concerned for us to focus on the heart, not just the externalities. When you think about it, it's the Pharisees who were always focusing on the externals, weren't they? This was the problem. The Pharisees were always just focusing on the outward rules. And they would have been right with Jesus in terms of don't commit adultery. I mean, they knew that one. That was the Ten Commandments. They were big on that in terms of an external commandment. But they didn't really care much about what we do with our hearts. They didn't care so much about the rest of us. It was just about keeping the rules and sometimes just keeping the rules to be seen to be keeping the rules. But Jesus is painting a much more holistic picture here of sexuality. And I think, by the way, that evangelical Christians today can sometimes become a bit like the Pharisees. And we can, if we're not careful, focus only on the externalities when it comes to sex as well, can't we? I mean, we, we've all got this rule in our heads, which is biblical, and we all want to tell our teenage kids, don't have sex before marriage. But like, sometimes that's it. That's it. And they're like, why not? Well, I don't, just the Bible says, just don't, I don't know why not, just don't do it. And they, I don't care what else you do, just don't do that. And we're like, we've got this one rule, that's it. We like, stick a purity ring on their finger and just don't have sex before marriage and then you'll be good. And in that sense, we have become a little bit pharisaical. Now, I'm all for that, the importance of that commandment of keeping sex for marriage. But I'm saying if that's all we do with it, then you can understand why teenagers think, well, why? And, and we can understand why teenagers just run off and do it anyway, because there's no context for this. There's no sense of where's this coming from? There's no sense of a bigger story around that. We're looking for a story to live out of. So we've got to be careful as Christians that we don't just approach this in terms of here's five rules to keep or here's just one rule to keep and just don't have sex before marriage. There's a much bigger picture here. This is what I want to sketch for you. Is Jesus' words here are coming out of a big, beautiful vision of what the Bible says about sex and what the Bible says about sexuality. And Jesus doesn't give us every detail in this passage, but what he says is grounded 
in a biblical picture of human sexuality. And if we can understand that picture, then we will be able to understand the specifics of what Jesus is saying. And we will be able to communicate these specifics much more effectively. So I just want to sketch out for a minute this biblical picture, broad biblical picture of human sexuality. Just four points, okay? We could go into a lot more depth to these, but this is just to give some context to what Jesus is saying. Firstly, our sexuality is grounded in the image of God. So our sexuality goes right back to the beginning of the biblical story. It's not just something that happened after human beings sinned. It's not just all the result of disobedience. Our sexuality is grounded in who we are, made in the image of God, male and female. We are gendered beings. Our gender is rooted. Our sexuality is rooted in biology as male and female, and that is connected to our identity of human beings made in the image of God. That doesn't mean that our sexuality is everything. I think this is where our culture sometimes goes with sexuality, is that my sexuality is my entire identity, that my sexual orientation is my entire identity. The Bible doesn't take us there. Your sexuality is not everything that you are. Your sexuality is not the all-defining sum total of who you are, but your sexuality is an important dimension of who you are, and it goes right back to your identity as a man or a woman made in the image of God. Secondly, sexual desire is a good gift from God. Anyone want to say amen? Probably not today. But this is the reality. Right? Have, has anyone read the book of Song of Songs in the Bible? One of these years, I'm going to preach on Song of Songs, and we are all going to go red as a beetroot, because this is what it is, right? I mean, this is, that, that, is a, that is a book in our Bible that is dedicated to the, the beautiful sexual expression between husband and wife. Like sexual desire is a good thing. We don't need to be ashamed of it. We don't need to be embarrassed about it. We don't need to allegorize that book away and say, oh, that's just about Christ and the church. No, it's about husband and wife. It is about sex and that's okay. Our sexual desire is a good gift from God, but it is also not always what we think it is. That your sexual desire is not just about your body. It's not just a bodily appetite. Sometimes we reduce it to that. I think our culture often reduces it to that, that it's just purely about having my needs met. It's just purely about a physical thing. But in scripture, our sexuality is very holistic. Again, this is why Jesus talks about the heart. It's not just about what you do with your body. It's about the heart. Our sexuality is interwoven with our heart and our mind and our soul. That's why you can never say it's just sex. Biblically, that just doesn't, doesn't make sense. You can never say it's, just, it's never just sex. It is never. Even just the physical act of sex is never just sex. Someone once described sex as the intermingling of souls. That is what is happening when two people have sex. It is the intermingling of souls, whether they realize that or not, but there is a joining of heart and mind and soul and body. That's why Jesus describes marriage as one flesh. In fact, that goes right back to Genesis. One flesh, husband and wife. There is a deep union that goes far beyond just what we do with our bodies. So when we think about sexual desire, don't think just about a physical thing. Think about 
our sexuality is all interwoven with our desire for intimacy and our desire for relationship and our desire for connection, our desire for community, our desire to know and to be known, our desire to love and to be loved. All of that is bound up in our sexual desire. And that helps to explain the third point, which is that sexual desire at a deepest level can be fulfilled in marriage and singleness. And it points ultimately towards our union in Christ. That might be a bit of a surprise. But what I want to say is this. When we, when we make marriage the whole ball game, what does that say to single people? If, you, if all you say is the entire purpose of your sex drive is to get to marriage, the entire reason that you have sexual desire is so it can be fulfilled in marriage, what does that say to the single person? I mean, that, then you ask questions about, well, why has God given me a sex drive at all? Sex is not, the act of sex is reserved for marriage, but our sexuality runs much deeper than that. Ultimately, our sexual desire and our sexuality is a signpost towards something even beyond marriage. It is ultimately a signpost to intimacy with God. Even marriage itself is a signpost to intimacy between Christ and the church. I'm not trying to sexualize our relationship with God. I'm saying that our sexual desire is a signpost to something much, much bigger, which is ultimately the covenant love of God for us and our response in loving Him. That's why there's no marriage in heaven. That's why there's no sex in heaven. I'm sorry to disappoint you. So it's right there in the Bible. Jesus basically says that. You know, there's no sex in heaven. If marriage was ultimate, if sex was the ultimate goal, there'd be marriage in heaven. There'd be sex in heaven. There's not which tells us that these things are pointing to something else. Ultimately, our sexual desire, even marriage itself, is pointing towards the, un the union and the unity that we have with Jesus Christ. And that's why, at a deep level, our sexual desire can be fulfilled whether you're a married person or a single person. Again, yep, let me be really clear. The act of sex, biblically, is for marriage because it is designed to be a lifelong covenant relationship. But our sexual desire comes from that deep desire for intimacy, unity, relationship, and that is something that we can find fulfillment in relationships, whether we are single or whether we're married, and we ultimately let those things point us towards our union and our intimacy with God. Finally then, like every other desire, our sexual desire has become disordered. And this is true of all the desires of our heart. At a certain point, these desires come off course, off track, and what happens to our sexual desire is that it just gets turned inwards towards ourselves. But it's important to remember, all sin comes from desire that at its core is fundamentally good. Sin is the distortion of good desire. Right? These desire, our sexual desire is a good thing. Don't assume just because sexual desire gets out of control that it's a bad thing. It is a good desire, but it becomes disordered. It becomes bent out of shape, and it becomes just turned towards selfishness. So it becomes turned just towards me satisfying my desires. How can I get my needs met? How can I get satisfaction? It's all about the self rather than the way God intended our sexuality is that it was supposed to be designed towards the other and to be a selfless, sacrificial thing. But our sexual desire gets bent towards ourselves. That is the context out of which lust comes that Jesus is talking about. 
It ultimately comes out of good desire. Sexual desire is a good thing, but it gets bent and distorted out of shape and it just becomes about me. And then that objectifies the other person rather than truly loving the other person. This is the origins of lust. So we'll get to more on lust in a second, but let me just show you how radically different this is from the way that our culture thinks about sex. Because I think it's important to see this biblical vision of sexuality in the context of the way that Western culture looks at sexuality. So let me just draw here on a great book by Jonathan Grant called Divine Sex. Really good book if you want to read it. And he talks about three things that have happened in Western culture. First of all, sex has become disconnected from marriage, right? That's old news in a sense. Like that, I mean, that's like mid-20th century that happened, that sex and marriage no longer were thought to need to go together. But then more recently, sex has become disconnected even from a committed relationship, right? So culturally, this is generally how it's thought of. You don't need to have a committed relationship anymore to have sex. What do you need now? Consent, right? That's basically what you need. That, that's essentially where our culture is now in terms of the conditions for sex is consent. Now, I, I'm absolutely committed to the importance of consent. Don't mishear me. Consent is fundamental. What I'm saying is if you have a culture where all you need for sex is consent, and that's it, you have a culture with an incredibly weak view of sex, an incredibly impoverished view of sex. If that's all that's required, just the consent between two adults, outside of any other committed relationship, that is a sign that culture itself has such a shrunken up view of what sex is intended to be. And then thirdly, sex becomes disconnected even from another person. So now, with the rise of pornography, sex is something that you can do just in the privacy of your own house with your own phone. Now, pornography's been around for a long time, but the rise of internet pornography has just made pornography accessible 24-7. Wherever you want, it's completely private, and it's totally unseen. And so it's just unbelievably prolific now. And the other thing to understand with pornography is that it has changed dramatically in the last generation or so. Those of you that came to the documentary, Our Kids Online, you know this, right? We, as, as, parent, as, well, just as, as Christians, simply as human beings, I think we need to recognize pornography today is not what pornography was in the 1990s. It is a very different thing now. So much pornography now is violent porn. It is degrading it is dehumanizing. It is beyond objectifying. It is horrendous. It is essentially the videoing of sexual assault and sexual abuse. And you can draw correlations between sexual assault and sexual abuse. So often in the background is violent porn. And we, we cannot be naive and think, oh, it's just pornography. It doesn't matter. It's just like sex education. What this does is dehumanize those that are involved in it, and it dehumanizes those that watch it because it is so horrendously degrading in its content. And this is the irony of our culture, I think. On the one hand, our culture wants to uphold sexuality. Sexuality is such a big topic. It's so important. It's so fundamental to identity for many people. It is the heart of their identity. On the other hand, the kind of sexuality that we allow to proliferate in our culture is such a trivialized, cheapened, often horrendous, form of sexuality, that we allow that kind of pornography to be rampant in a culture that claims to value sexuality. So there's a real contradiction, I think, in our culture. On the one hand, sexuality is seen to be so important. On the other hand, we pursue it in ways that are dehumanizing.
that are objectifying and that make people less human, not more human. So there is a deep contradiction in the heart of our culture. And I think this is why, as Christians, we need to understand a biblical view of sexuality and be able to speak into it. So I want you to see the big picture. That was my heart in walking you through that so that you see what Jesus is saying in the context of this big vision. And it is a good vision of God's design for sexuality. And you see how different that is to the current cultural climate that we are swimming in. Again, that's not a reason to get angry and get defensive and be hostile. But it's simply a reason to be able to step forward and say, we've got a better story. And we've got a a biblical picture of sex that gives sexuality far more dignity and value and goodness than what we see around us in our culture. So with that in mind, let's have a look at what Jesus specifically says about how we can maintain sexual purity before God. And I know for many of you, this is a big struggle. Maybe for some of you, not so much, but for some of you, this is the battle of your life. And so I want to become practical now in looking at what Jesus says about how we can deal with the fight against impurity and lust. Two main things I want to draw out here. First of all, come back to verse 28. Whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I think, by the way, that we could say this is for both men and women. I know the language is masculine. He has committed adultery by looking lustfully at her, but this can go both ways, okay? So this could be looking lustfully at a male or a female in person or online, okay? So this is all-encompassing what Jesus says. What Jesus is emphasizing here is the importance of the heart. This is where the battle, the real battle for sexual purity is often won or lost, is in the heart. Uh, Listen to the words of Rebecca McLaughlin. She says, if we read this in the context of Jesus' teachings as a whole, we find that it's not our eyes or our hands that cause us to sin. It's our heart. The rot has gone so deep that there's no part of us that's salvageable. So what on earth are we to do? And of course, what we are to do is to guard our heart. That's what the Bible tells us in Proverbs. Guard your heart. Everything else you do comes from that. So we can point the finger at our culture and we can point the finger at pornography And we can point the finger at at all sorts of things around us. But ultimately, we've got to acknowledge this is a problem in our heart. This is a problem in the human heart. It's not our culture's fault, ultimately. It's not anyone else's fault. This is a problem that runs through our heart. And we need to pay attention to our heart. The book of James says, each one of you is tempted when by their own sinful desires, they are dragged away and enticed. It's these desires in our heart that lead us into sin. Yes, they might be stimulated by something externally, but it's these desires in our heart. And I think sadly as Christians, we're way more casual about sins of the heart than we are about sins of the flesh. Would that be right? And maybe we're just like the Pharisees again. We care about the outside. We care about making sure everyone else knows that we're keeping the rules. We care about the instructions, the commandments. We don't care so much about the heart because it's unseen. And the person sitting next to you doesn't know what's going on in your heart. And so we feel this kind of freedom to be able to do whatever we want in our minds and our hearts because it's not outward action. Jesus says, guard your heart. Proverbs says, guard your heart. This is the source of sin and temptation. And that means that we need to take action and take control and take account of the thoughts that are coming into our minds and our hearts. And when there are sexually impure thoughts and fantasy and lust and so on swirling around within us, we need, by the grace of God, to be decisive 
and to deal with those things immediately. There is a real importance here to immediacy. When you let those kind of thoughts just swirl around for a few minutes and you're going to play around with that stuff and you just nurse that fantasy for a few more minutes and you just let it in there and you let it get a hold in your mind, after five minutes, it is a hundred times harder to get that out, isn't it? It is exponentially more difficult. If you've played around with that thing and, 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 you, and you think, who cares? You know, it's just, it's just what's going on in my mind. It's my thoughts. It's not going to come to anything. It's not affecting anybody, but it's affecting you. And, and it's arousing desire. And, and as you allow that to take hold in your life, it just becomes harder and harder to free yourself from that. So we need to be willing to deal with these things as soon as they come into our mind. Paul says, take every thought captive and build an off-ramp for your mind to, to distract yourself when those thoughts come in so that you guard your heart. And you, you don't need to over-spiritualize over this. I think like at a practical level, yes, you can, you can, instead of thinking about sexual impurity, you can think about Jesus, but I found it just as effective to think about my times tables. They can be just as spiritual in this moment. Um, just do your seven times tables or just do your 13 times tables if you need to. There is something here about distraction. Just the basic art of distraction. You need to get your mental energy off whatever it is you're thinking about and onto something else. Yes, you can meditate on the Trinity, but you can also meditate on algebra. That's just as effective. Just move your mind. Train your mind to sort of bounce off that thing and onto just something else that is going to take some mental energy. Uh, at a really practical level, this works. And give it a few minutes of times tables and you've cooled your jets. And you're a little bit more able to focus and think and feel more rationally. This is at the most practical level, what it means for you to guard your heart. Deal with these things as soon as they come in. Treat them seriously. Don't just treat them like, well, it's not, it's not anything I'm doing, so it doesn't matter. God sees your heart. Deal with these things quickly and immediately. All right, and then Jesus says this really hard saying here at the, uh, in the final couple of verses. He says, verse 29, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. So in the history of the church, some people have taken this literally and they have maimed themselves, even castrated themselves to try and obey what Jesus is saying here. I think there's a deeper principle involved. I don't think Jesus is literally talking about maiming ourselves. What he is talking about is identifying areas of temptation and dealing with them directly and dealing with them decisively. It's dealing, the, the right eye symbolizes those areas that are particular temptations, particular areas of vulnerability for you. Because here's the thing, there, we have a real enemy, right? The evil one. He is real. He is going to come after you. He is going to find your weak spot. And if this whole area of sexual purity is an issue for you as it will be for many, many, many of you in the room. He will exploit that weakness for everything he's got. But he's, he's probably not going to show up to you and say, hey, why don't you binge on porn for three hours? Right? Most of us, if we heard that voice, would say, no, I'm not going to do that. But what he will say is, why don't you just jump on YouTube and watch a couple of harmless videos? He'll get you the first step right? And then once you're the first step, then he'll say, now, why don't you jump on that slightly more edgy website? Then why don't you? Then why don't you? Then, and so it's a staircase. And he, I mean, the evil one knows. He knows how to lure you in. We can't be naive about this. So he will always just get you to the first stair 
and then the second steer and the third steer. So the point Jesus is making is prevent yourself from taking even that first step. And this comes down to putting healthy boundaries in place in our lives. I think there's, there's unhealthy ways of doing boundaries and there's healthy ways. The Pharisees were the unhealthy ways. That, that was just about putting 10 rules in place instead of one. That's not what we want to do. But there is a healthy way, which is to say, is there a particular context? Is there a person? Is there a place? Is there an environment for you that you know when you're in that place or it's that time of day or you're on your own in that hotel room or that person is there, you know that the heart is going to be racing and you're in a place of temptation. You've got to know your triggers. You've got to know the first step. What is the first step on that staircase for you? And then, by the grace of God, what is a healthy, appropriate boundary that you could put, a, put around that that would prevent you from taking even the first step? So I'll, I'll, I'll be honest and tell you. So one of, the, one of the things that I have in my life is I won't go on the internet if I'm the only one home. That might seem silly. might seem like, well, why don't you just, why? You know, that's, that seems crazy. It's not that I think if I'm the only one home, I'm going to binge watch porn for five hours. It's that I don't even want to put myself in a place of temptation. I don't want to take the first step. I don't want to be in a space where that becomes a massive temptation for me. And it could if I was just surfing the net with no one at home. I'm not saying that you all have to put that in place in your life. Please don't go home and like, oh, Ruben said we can't watch the internet unless no one is home. I'm not saying that for you, right? You figure it out for you. And maybe if you're married, talk together about what healthy boundaries would be. But know your heart, know your triggers, and put a boundary in place that is appropriate for you. I know, I uh, heard the story of a guy who took a particular train to work. And on that train, there was a woman. And he became attracted to her. And he just couldn't stop thinking about her. He just got inside his head. He had all this desire. He had this attraction. And it was just consuming his focus. And so he ended up talking to his wife about it. And he said, there's a woman on the train. I just can't. I'm so, you know, I just got these feelings and I don't know what to do. And she looked at him and said just two words, change trains. That was it. Now, you could say, well, that guy just needs to grow up and get some self-control. Well, the way in which he's going to exercise self-control is to change trains. That's what self-control looks like for that guy. Is it going to be inconvenient? Yes. Is it potentially going to be costly? Yes. Is it going to mean a longer commute? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Jesus makes no mistake about the fact that the stakes are high here. He doesn't say, hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, just close your eye. He doesn't say, hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, just wear an eye patch. He says, gouge it out. Take action and take it seriously. He uses this dramatic language because the stakes are high and he knows the damage that we can do through going down the wrong path sexually to our own hearts to our relationships with others, to families and households, and on it goes. And so he's saying to us, take action. What is that thing in your life? Is there something that's coming to your mind now? Being around a particular person, particular business trips, particular bar, particular time of day or context that you know you are weak and vulnerable. Take action. Gouge out that eye. Cut off that hand. Do what you need to do. Yes, it is going to be difficult. Sexual purity is going to cost us something. I just believe that's true, right? If we want to win this battle, it is not going to come cheap. 
and it's not going to come without a cost to us. Out there, a lot of times, it's a pain in the neck not being able to use the internet when I'm home alone. That is the cost for me. And that is the eye that I've chosen to gouge out for the sake of my own heart and my marriage and my family. And when I put it in that context, it is worth it. So before God, search your heart. And if there is a step to take, please take it. Please be courageous. And draw someone else into the struggle. I know Jesus doesn't specifically say that here, but let me just touch on it. If this is a real struggle and battle for you, draw someone else into your struggle. Put yourself in accountability to someone else. Let them ask you the hard questions. Open your life to them. And let them ask you how how you're going regularly. The more that you can bring this stuff out into the light, and that's what I'm hoping today is as much as anything, is just bringing it into the light. It robs this of so much power. As long as all this stuff stays in the darkness and it stays in the shadows and it's not really the stuff you talk about in church, the evil one's winning, isn't he? He's winning because we're not talking about something that is a major, major battle and a huge part of our humanity and our struggle. And bring it out into the light personally with someone else that you trust who can walk alongside you. Finally, let me say this. I know that this is an area that carries with it so much shame. And I know even though I haven't intended it, just in what I've said this morning, it may have caused you to feel even more of that shame. Because for some of you, this is a battle right now that you're losing, and it feels like two steps forward, and it feels like five steps backwards, and you feel like the harder you try, the harder it gets, and the more willpower you exert, the the more helpless you feel. And there is so much shame associated with that, and you feel maybe that if someone else knew what was in your heart, they, they would be absolutely horrified. Let me tell you, God knows what's in your heart, and He loves you anyway. God knows exactly what's in your heart this morning. He knows how dark it is. He knows how wicked it is. But he loves you with an everlasting love. And Jesus has taken your shame. Can you hear that? Some of you just need to hear that this morning. That Jesus has taken your shame. Maybe it's shame because of something that you have done. Maybe it's shame because of something that has been done to you. Maybe it's something that happened many, many years ago. Maybe it's something that happened just this morning. Jesus has taken that shame. And on the cross, he has died for all of it. He's taken it upon himself. All of the shame in our hearts, all the stuff that we've done, all the ways that we are broken sexually and we have mucked up and stuffed up and failed spectacularly in this area. He has died for it so that you could be free and you could be forgiven and you could be restored and you could hear the Father say to you today, I love you and you are accepted. Doesn't matter how far you've fallen, doesn't matter how many times you are yet to fall, God loves you. And if you belong to Jesus, you are totally forgiven, past, present, and future. And God lifts that shame from us, and he gives us fresh hope. And he gives you hope to know that the future can be different. Some of you just need hope this morning. Because when you're in the thick of it, when you're in the battle, and when you're failing in this area, you lose all hope, and you just feel total despair. Some of you just need to hear that word hope. There is hope. It's not hopeless. But by the grace of God, he will restore you. He'll create in you a clean heart. He'll renew a right spirit within you. And through the help of others around you, maybe a counselor, other accountability partners, and over time, and yes, it may be three steps forward and five steps backwards, but over time, God will lead you forward by his grace. And step by step, he'll guide you into a new future. There is always, always hope. I want you to hear that freedom this morning. I want you to hear that hope. I want you to hear the message of God's unconditional grace. Otherwise, we just end in a place of shame. Whereas God's word to us is always a word of grace. So in this crazy culture of hypersexuality, 
My prayer is that as Christians, that we could learn to live out of a bigger story when it comes to sex and sexuality, that we wouldn't need to be ashamed of these things, but that we could speak a message of truth in the midst of our culture, not with antagonism, not with hostility, but with love and with grace and with truth. And we could live out a a vision of sexuality that is good and beautiful and rich and deep and full and glorifying to God, and that we would be able to put back together what our culture has torn apart, that we'd be able to connect sex again to our hearts and our souls and our minds as well as our bodies, and that we would be able to connect sex again to relationship and to marriage and to our humanity, and yes, even to our relationship with God. And we'd be able to elevate sex beyond the kind of objectifying, cheap version of it that goes around in our culture to give it back the dignity and the value that it has in God's eyes and that we would be able to show the world that when we mess up in this area, as we all do, that God's grace is so abundant and God's grace is sufficient to deal with all of the shame that we are carrying. So let's pursue wholeness. Let's pursue integrity. Let's pursue purity, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of one another and ultimately for the glory of God. And let's allow the grace of God to be the beginning and the middle and the end of this journey and do this in a way that is glorifying and honoring to Him as He helps us day by day, step by step. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm really aware that we're talking about things this morning that are heavy and intense. And I I feel that in the room and... I just want to pray, Holy Spirit, for your working in the hearts of people now. Uh, You know, God, you see every heart. You see every journey. You see the hearts that are full and you see the hearts that are broken. God, I, I thank you that it's your work and I trust you with that. And we just pray now that as we just take this moment in your presence, that you would just come and just work in our hearts. God, some just need to hear your word of grace this morning. Some just need to hear hope. Uh, Some, Lord, maybe you're prompting to stand beside others who are struggling in this area, to love them and and to be a real friend to them. Uh, God, for those this morning who are really battling and fighting in this area, God, would you lift up their eyes to see, Jesus, how you have carried all of our shame and brokenness and the way that you give us new life. And God, would you send us out of here equipped for the battle that's ahead of us. Lord, we know that we live in this spiritual warfare, and we know that this is not easy. But God, we thank you that you have won the victory for us. We thank you that, Jesus, you've already won. You've already won the battle against sin and evil and all these things. And in you, we have that victory. So God, would you strengthen us? Would you give us your grace? Would you help us as a community to be able to Uh, love each other and have these conversations and talk about these things in ways that are healthy and appropriate and honoring and supportive, God, because we want to move forward with each other. And so, God, we just trust you with our lives. And we ask that you would work within us in ways that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. 
Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.